0: Well, every month about this time, one lucky man in the congregation gets to preach a sermon. And this month, it's me. And I'll echo some of the comments from the past that I really appreciate the elders setting aside this time for us to do that sort of thing. It just seems like it's been a while since I've actually preached a sermon. So uh, the title of my sermon this evening is Learning to Dance in the Rain. Now, the reason I chose that particular title will become clear, I think, as the sermon progresses. But basically, I want to tie together three different topics tonight. The problem of evil and suffering, the storms of life, and our protection or our defense. Now, I recognize that that's, uh, uh, I've bitten off quite a bit there I could spend uh, multiple lessons on every one of these and still not sufficiently cover those topics but uh, we're just going to kind of brush the surface this evening. Now, evil and suffering are certainly problems for us, but what I when when I say the problem of evil and suffering, I'm talking about what many people today see as this This sort of age-old paradox, this dilemma, this problem that they see between the love of God and the evil and the suffering that exists in the world around us. And, And the problem that I'm talking about can best be illustrated with an example. Now some of you have been around long enough to remember this. But in 1991, an 11 year old girl, 11 year old girl, was abducted from the street while walking to her school bus stop. The man who abducted her was a drug addict and a convicted sex offender, and had pulled up alongside the girl as she walked and simply asked for directions. No doubt she's been told many times that she's not supposed to talk to strangers, but who can resist helping someone in need, right? Once she got close enough to him, this man used a stun gun to incapacitate her. And this man, who was 40 years old at the time of this abduction, kept her locked in a shed in his backyard. He kept her locked in that shed for 18 years. And this is not the proper forum to discuss the details of that imprisonment, but suffice to say that her captor visited her often, and during those 18 years, she gave birth to two children. That is the kind of nightmare that every parent has for their children. And I would say every grandparent for their grandchildren. And for the children out in the audience and teenagers, even, listen to your parents when they say things like, look both ways before crossing the road. And don't talk to strangers, even if they're offering some sort of gift or asking for help. Don't accept a ride from anyone you're not expecting to get a ride from. Look, as parents, we're just trying to prevent you from making decisions that could cost you your life or cause a lot of pain. It's the evil that is in the world. And back to our illustration about this problem of evil and suffering. In this illustration, we see evil in the form of the man who abducted her. And we see suffering. Eighteen years of unimaginable suffering on the part of this girl who was abducted. Absolutely gut-wrenching to think about that. So this is how this problem of evil and suffering is usually stated. Either... God did not know this happened, in which case he's not the all-present and all-knowing God that he claims to be. Or God did know about it, but he was powerless to do anything about it after it happened, in which case he's not the all-powerful God that he claims to be. Or God knew about it, could have stopped it, but decided not to do so, in which case he is not the kind, merciful, all-loving God that he claims to be. And and they'll usually end this argument with a phrase like, I simply can't worship or believe in a God like that. The argument is very cleverly worded. It's worded in such a way that it can test the faith of even a strong Christian. But, but as we'll see, there are some errors in these assumptions about God. Uh, here's another one for you along the same lines. A question, why did God create Satan in the first place? If he knew that creating Satan would result in all the sin and suffering in the world, to include the, the brutal death of his son. Either he didn't know it would happen, or he was powerless to do anything about it, or he just doesn't care, is the way it's usually stated. How do we respond to that? We'll, we'll we'll respond to that in just a few minutes. Before I do that, I want to I want to mention a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. You may have you may have heard that name before. Probably one of the most recognized atheists of our day. He's also one of the most recognized scholars of New Testament studies to include textual criticism of the New Testament, studies of the historical Jesus, the origins of development of early Christianity. By his own admission, he tells how as a young man he was a born-again fundamentalist Christian. And if you're not familiar with that term, fundamentalist, uh, it typically refers to Christians that have a more literal interpretation of the Bible. We might use the word conservative today. I don't know the specifics about what he believed. But uh, conservative Christians in general, like we are, would certainly share a lot of common ground. But the reason I bring him up at all is because he reached a point in his studies where he began to struggle immensely with the problems of evil and suffering, and simply, could not reconcile the existence of evil and suffering with the God of the Bible. So he would eventually drop his faith altogether. And he would swing to the opposite end of the spectrum where he wholeheartedly denies the existence of a supreme being. We like to talk about atheists who while trying to disprove one thing or another in the Bible, end up becoming Christians in their quest for the truth. But for every atheist who became a Christian, there's a Christian somewhere that has lost their faith and now has gone into atheism or agnosticism. This Bart Ehrman is a prolific writer, speaker, debater, and is the professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's that's more than a little concerning to me that, that an avowed atheist is a professor of religious studies at a major university, but should we be surprised at that? He's done much to damage the cause of Christ and what I want to point out is that many times our children are wholly unprepared for the onslaught of such teachings in our colleges and universities, and even down to our public schools. There was a time when these teachings were merely suggestive in nature. But what we are seeing more and more today is this this outright attack on anyone who disagrees with them. Anyone that believes in God. Discrepancies in the Bible are thrown out in in, in rapid-fire fashion. God is put on uh, trial and summarily executed without a a reasonable defense. And our our young people are being hit with this barrage of questions, questions that, that they don't have answers to. The result is that our own young people are leaving the church in record numbers. And we've got to do something about that. Even as parents, I think, maybe do a better job to prepare them for these kinds of things. Just like this problem of evil and suffering, Satan has become very clever in his arguments And if we and our children are not prepared to deal with that, then they can lose their faith. And sadly, I have experienced that in my own family. It's no less gut-wrenching than this example here. To have a loved one snatched away by evil in the world. But the answer to Bart Ehrman and so many others, that they failed to recognize this. The answer to the problem of evil and suffering is this. It had to be this way. Now You might be thinking, I've just about lost my marbles, but stay with me here. It had to be this way. God's plan, and it's truly a complex and remarkable plan. His plan is for us to demonstrate our love for Him. And Romans 5.8 talks about how God demonstrated His love for us. He, he sent Jesus to die on the cross even while we were still enemies of the cross. That, that's a kind of love that's it's hard to wrap our minds around. But how do we demonstrate our love for Him? Through obedience, by simply doing what He has told us to do. Consider this, our love for God must be demonstrated. We demonstrate our love for God through obedience. Obedience means nothing without a choice. God could have created created us without a choice, but without the ability to choose. How could we ever demonstrate obedience? And our choice comes through Temptation, Or in other words, temptation provides the vehicle for that choice. If we were never tempted to choose something other than what is right, what reason would we have to choose what is wrong? God himself does not tempt us. The Bible makes that very clear in James 1.13. But God's plan had to include a tempter and the free will to choose so that we could be tested, so that we could show our love for God, demonstrating our love for God through obedience. Now, what about the errors in the assumptions that were stated earlier? Why didn't God spare this child this suffering? Well, for starters, we've got to keep in mind that God does not owe us an explanation. It seems our go-to question anytime we are going through any kind of trial or anytime anyone around us is going through any kind of trial is, why? Why me, Lord? If we don't learn anything else from the book of Job... It should be that God does not owe us an explanation for anything that he does. In fact, Job suffered through everything and God never told him why. We know why. We read about it. God never told Job why. Someone once said, when we understand who... We don't need to know why. Next, we've got to remember that his ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. In fact, the very next verse goes on to compare the difference between his ways and our ways as like the distance between the heavens and the earth. And when we consider the vastness of the cosmos and how far away those distant stars and galaxies are, that difference boggles the mind. But based on what God has revealed about himself in scriptures, we can see some very basic errors in the assumptions that were highlighted earlier. The fact that this incident happened does not prove that God did not know about it. It does not prove that he was powerless to do anything about it. It does not prove that he did not love this child or even the man that abducted her. To say otherwise is to completely misunderstand not only the character of God, but the very meaning of the kind of love that God has for mankind. All mankind. The existence of evil in the world does not prove there is no God. Do you know what it proves? It proves there's evil in the world. And God said there would be evil in the world. God created man with a choice, given a choice. So often we choose the path of least resistance. And that path is away from him. That path is doing what is right in our own eyes. And even as David talked about in his lesson this morning, trouble and chaos arise when men do what is right in their own eyes. So think about this. For God to have stopped this, he would have had to remove that man's free will to choose to do it. Like everyone else, that man had a choice. He chose evil. And because of that, this girl suffered mightily. We could put forth any number of examples of how man's decisions have have greatly impacted not only our own lives, my own decisions, my own life, but those around me as well. But time will not allow us to do that. Let me move on to the storms of life. So the second point that I want to make and tie back into the sin and suffering is this. And this is where I get the title of my lesson. If you can't read that up on the screen, it says, life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Life is going to be filled with these storms, with suffering. And I'm talking about the various trials, as Peter referred to them in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, or that James referred to in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, 1 Peter teaches us that although we look for a heavenly inheritance, A place that is incorruptible, and undefiled, and does not fade away. A place where there will be no more suffering. The road that gets us to that place is absolutely paved with suffering. The psalmist said in Psalm 57 in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. You know, our our storms may be personal, like the death of a loved one, a health crisis, a financial crisis, a spiritual crisis. Our storms may be shared storms, like problems in the church or, I don't know, a global pandemic. But regardless, it seems that the one constant is that life is going to be filled with an endless succession of these storms. And and we need to decide how we're going to handle them. Do we... Hunker down, as it were, and wait for the storm to pass. That may be necessary from time to time, but if that's our consistent response for every storm that we face in life, then we're going to spend a lot of our lives just hunkered down. Or do we learn to dance in the rain? James said in James chapter 1 and verse 2, count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, that sounds like dancing in the rain to me. I believe the key to understanding James chapter 1 and verse 2 is, first of all, perspective. But second, the knowledge, as the next verse reveals, that something good comes from those trials. Something good comes from the storms of life. I'm not saying there isn't a time for grief. I don't believe James is saying that either. Certainly there is a time for grief. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there's a proper time for every purpose under heaven. And in verse 4 he said a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. But when we can keep our suffering in the proper perspective, knowing that it's temporary, knowing that there is a great reward that awaits the faithful, we can be joyful, in a sense, at the same time. And someone once said, the closer we are to God, the smaller everything else appears. I believe that is so true. And again... Produces something good. What does James say in James 1 3? That the testing of our faith produces something. What? Patience? Some translations say endurance. Why is it that an athlete can take joy in the pain, the, the burn that comes from pushing the body to its limits? If you've ever been to a gym where there are weightlifters, you're going to hear a lot of yelling going on. If someone who was next door listening through the walls would think that people were being tortured over there, why do they do it? What, what possible pleasure could come from that? How can they yell out in pain and at the same time be joyful about what they are doing? Because they know that something good comes from it, strength and endurance, and that's where their focus is. Does that make sense? Focus. Paul said to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, we also glory in tribulations. What? How can that be? Paul, tell us how we can glory in tribulations. Because, Paul goes on to say, they produce something good in us. Perseverance, character, hope. Do we need those qualities? What are we without those qualities? surely there must be some other way. Tell me how I can gain endurance and perseverance and character and hope in a way that is not so painful to me. The silence echoes back. There is no other way. And in all of this, we're told not to worry, not to be anxious. I've given a lot of thought lately to this passage that was read earlier, specifically Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. You know, we studied Philippians recently with Leland, and there have been a number of sermons recently that, that have used this passage. And maybe that's because recent events in the current situation leave us with so many things to worry about. gotten to the point where I worry that I'm worrying too much. Four words. Be anxious for nothing. The Greek word for anxious here is most often translated using the English word worry. In fact, your translation may say, don't worry about anything. Tell me, Paul, with so much to be worried about, how is it that I can possibly escape worrying? But you know, as I study this, I also realized that the same Greek word that is translated as anxiety or anxious or worry here is translated as care in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul is speaking of Timothy and he says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. That kind of care shown by Timothy in Philippians 2.20, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But the same word used over in Philippians 4.6 is a bad thing and we're told not to do it. So I wondered a lot about that lately. And... I noticed that the root word for anxious means distraction. That's the key to understanding this word. How many times are we told, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth? Colossians 3.2. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Matthew 6 and verse 33. We're told not to be double-minded over in James 1.8 and in 4.8. In other words, we can have our minds set on heavenly things and have a healthy concern for others like Timothy did. We can have a healthy concern for ourselves, even the future as we plan it and, and as long as God is in it and He wills. But when we allow the cares of this world to distract us from heavenly things, that's the key, distracting. Well, that's what Paul is telling us not to do. Gerald mentioned this morning on the table about Jesus being in the garden. Matthew 26 and verse 37 talks about how Jesus in his his prayer on the eve of his crucifixion was deeply distressed. And in the next verse, he was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Sounds a little bit to me like he was worried. But what's the difference? Where was his focus? His focus was on God, and he said, Not my will be done, your will be done. You know, <clears throat> we should be able to take all of our cares and our worries, our anxieties to the throne of God and just leave them there and say, your will be done. And we've got to be able to accept whatever that will is. If His will is to con- for you to continue into this struggle, this trial, then we should do it joyfully knowing he wants us to do that and maybe some good will come from it. There's a popular saying, let go and let God. Let go of your cares. Bring them to God and let him deal with them. I'm reminded of an incident in the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35 where Jesus is asleep on a pillow in the stern of a boat. A great storm arises and that must have been some pillow because the waves are crashing over the boat to the point where the boat is filling with water and these experienced fishermen, these disciples of his were afraid for their very lives. And they wake Jesus, and they say in verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What an odd question to ask. Of all the things they could have said to Jesus or asked Jesus, they led with, do you not care? Of course, Jesus rises up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And in verse 39, he says, peace. Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. But you know, the story doesn't end there. The the lesson doesn't end right there where we see Jesus demonstrating his power over even the wind and the waves. Because what follows is a powerful statement from Jesus. A question, really. He says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? In Luke's account, he says, where is your faith? Jesus had been teaching his disciples lesson after lesson about faith. They had seen him work miracles. They knew the kind of care that he had for them. They had enough evidence to know that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, was with them. He was in their midst What can possibly happen to them if Jesus was in their midst? What about the storms in our lives? Do we recognize that Jesus is with us? When our faith is put to the test, how do we handle that? Would Jesus say to us, where is your faith? And something I realized Even when we're put to the test, as we so often are, and we fail miserably, something good can come from that, even as as I'm sure something good came from this powerful lesson to his disciples. Satan wants to beat us down and he wants to stay down. God wants us to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and get back in the fight and to to do so with greater determination and greater resolve to learn from our mistakes, to do better today and tomorrow than we did yesterday. That's the kind of God that we serve. And my last point, knowing that the storms would come, God did not leave us defenseless. You know, our Christian walk is often compared to that of a soldier in battle. That God did not simply toss us onto this battlefield and say, May the odds be ever in your favor. No, Paul points out to the church at Ephesus, there in Ephesus chapter 6, verse 10 and following, that God provided armor, armor that would allow us to stand strong in the power of his might, stand against the wiles of the devil, stand against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places, quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, And and note down through those passages how many times the word stand is used. I love that. Stand, stand, stand. And having done all, stand. Notice what we're told to do in verse 11. Put on. Verse 13, take up. We're to take up the armor and put it on. And not just bits and pieces. Not just what we think we might need for battle today but all of it, twice. In verses 11 and 13, we're told to take up and put on the whole armor of God. What sense does it make for a soldier to leave the protection of the bunker and go out into the field of battle with parts of his armor missing? And it's no different for us in our spiritual life battle. And the last part of that armor in verse 18 is prayer. It's been said that prayer is the chinking that holds all of the armor in place and fills the gaps. There's a song we sometimes sing that says some of the words say, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Look, our time's getting away from us. I'm going to bring this to a close. The problem of evil and suffering is not the problem or the dilemma that so many make it out to be. In God's plan, it had to be this way. And because sin and suffering exist, because we know that the storms are coming, we need to determine how we as Christians are going to handle those storms when they come knowing that good comes from them, we can rejoice and not allow ourselves to be distracted away from what is truly important. And we can take comfort in knowing that God has not left us defenseless on this battlefield of life. He provides us armor and protection, but he will not put that armor on for us. We must put that armor on ourselves. We must take it up and put it on all of it every single day of our lives. You might think this is a little corny, but I don't. Every morning when I wake up and I My legs swing around to the floor. I say, good morning, Lord. Thank you for the night's rest. Thank you for my good health. Thank you for this beautiful day you've blessed us with. And then I think about each one of those pieces of armor. Just like that song says, each piece put on with prayer. Look, I, I know that doesn't make me invincible, but it makes me feel a lot better knowing that I'm going out onto this battlefield with all that armor in place. And, my, and I remind myself of a question. What's the worst thing that could happen to me today? If I were to ask you that question and have you write it down on a piece of paper, what would you write? What is the worst thing that could happen to me today? Would you say, I could get in an automobile accident and die? Do you realize that as Christians, that is not the worst thing that could happen to us? If we die today, that is actually the best thing that could happen to us. I know to live benefits Christ, but to die, well, that benefits me, doesn't it? What is the worst thing that could happen to me today? I could lose my soul. I could sin against God and I could, I could exit the highway of life separated from God because of decisions I made and because decisions have consequences. There's a song we sometimes sing for an invitation song. It's titled, There's a Great Day Coming. It talks about a time when the saints and the sinners are going to be parted, right and left. It asks the question, Are you ready? Well, that great day is not going to be a great day for a lot of people. What side will you be on? when they part the sinners, right and left. What side will I be on? What's the worst thing that could happen to us today? So if we can assist you in any way in helping to make that day a great day, let us know while we stand and sing this song that's been selected.